Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikwe. Welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Saturday, August 26, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on in this episode, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the racially motivated massacre of African Americans in Jacksonville, Florida, that occurred uh, earlier today. In the southern African state of Zimbabwe, uh, the ZANU-PF ruling party has won another term of office in the southern African state. The British Museum in London is saying it has retrieved some of the artifacts which were missing uh, from the institution. And in Madagascar, people have been killed in a stampede at a sporting event. In the second hour, we have details on the Jacksonville race massacre, which took place uh, earlier today. Also, uh, the ruling uh, Zimbabwe African National Union Patriotic Front Party has won another election to continuous rule in the Southern African state. We'll have uh, two uh, statements uh, from the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission as well as from the ZANU-PF leadership. Finally, we continue our Black August month-long focus uh, on the struggle of African people against enslavement, colonialism, neocolonialism, and imperialism. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take a break uh, with Bozi Boziana and the Anti-Shock. Let's listen in. Mawe, 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 chandele Mwe wa mzi 
kombo ya ngabisalo na likambo akoka kakola lisate mama il voit lukanga kino ye azwanga kwazomitira kokutolenga bolingo nimbalezali bongeko sala sanga mwete mapatana likorobeae sanga eko Je 
ezale na kate sangana ngambo na kumana ngambo ya draza
Kanye Emile, Docteur Ya Fontenelle.
na boy na nyoka mamutindo yo mbana tonga kinga na litio na zongi na mopandi ata na eba na tuni eso ki azala kazindo meme ti tsomontele azala ka couleur d'or azala ka lokola moi moye azala ka katikati ya moki Sokina monyete moki le mobimba moi pe mimate Arieta di mama oh mama Arieta di mama wana yolo
And that was the music of Bozi Boziana and the Anti-Shock, one of the legendary uh, bands uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, that was taken from an album entitled Don's Nas Wiza. And you're listening uh, to uh, this program on Saturday evening, uh, August the 26th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And uh, these are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. In the United States, a white man has fatally shot to death three African people inside a Jacksonville, Florida Dollar General store in a predominantly African-American neighborhood earlier today in an attack uh, where he used a gun painted with a swastika. Officials said the shooter, who had also posted racist writings, then turned the gun on on himself and killed himself. Jacksonville Sheriff uh, T.K. Waters told a news conference that the attack left two men and one woman dead was definitely, quote, racially motivated, unquote. Quote, he hated black people, unquote, Waters said after reviewing the man's writings, which were sent to federal law enforcement officials and at least one media outlet shortly before the attack. He added that the gunman acted alone and, quote, there is absolutely no evidence the shooter is part of a larger group, unquote. Waters said the shooter, who was in his 20s, uh, used a Glock handgun and an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle with at least one of them painted with a swastika. He was wearing a bullet resistance vest. He said the shooter had once been involved in a 2016 domestic violence incident and was once involuntarily committed uh, to a mental hospital for examination. He did not provide further details of those incidents. 
Officials didn't immediately release the names of the victims or the shooter. The sheriff said the gunman had left behind in his writings evidence that leads investigators to believe that he committed the shooting because it was the fifth anniversary of when another gunman opened fire in a video game tournament in Jacksonville, killing two people before fatally shooting himself. The shooting happened uh, just before 2 p.m. at a Dollar General about three-quarters of a mile from Edward Waters University, a small historically uh, black university. In a statement, the university said that shortly before the shooting, one of the security officers saw the man near the school's library and asked him to identify himself. When he refused, he was asked to leave. The man returned to his car. Sheriff Waters said the man was spotting uh, putting on his vest and mask before leaving. He said it was unknown if he had originally planned to attack the university. Quote, I can't tell you that his mindset was what, what his mindset was while he was there, but he did go there, unquote, the sheriff said. Edwards Waters students were locked down in their dorms for several hours after the shooting. No students or faculty believed to be involved in the school said. And we'll have more information uh, on uh, this attack, racist attack, on the African-American community in Jacksonville, Florida. In other news, in southern Africa, Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa was re-elected uh, for a second uh, five-year term. Uh, that was announced earlier today. And, of course, in another uh, democratic election that has taken place on the continent. This is one of a series of votes since national independence from settler colonialism in what was known as the formerly Rhodesia uh, in 1980. An opposition party spokesperson, which is supported by the Western imperialist country, said within minutes of Imlangagwa's being declared the winner that they would reject the results as, quote, hastily assembled without proper verification, unquote. Imlangagwa victory uh, meant the ZANU-PF party retained the governmental leadership it has held for all of the 43 years of Zimbabwe's history since the nation was renamed following independence from white minority rule in 1980. And Zimbabwe has had just two leaders uh, during uh, the period between 1980 and 2023, the long-ruling Pan-African statesman Robert Mugabe and his successor, Emerson Mnangagwa. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. The head of uh, trustees at the British Museum uh, said earlier today that the museum has recovered some of the 2,000 items believed to have been stolen by an insider, but admitted that the 264-year-old institution does not have records of everything in its vast collection. Chairman of the trustees, George Osborne, acknowledged that the museum's reputation has been damaged by its mishandling of the thefts, which has sparked the resignation of its director and raised questions about the security and leadership. Osborne told the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, earlier today that 2,000 stolen items was a, quote, very provincial figure, end quote, and staff were working to identify everything missing. The items include gold jewelry, gemstones, and antiquities, uh, as much as 3,500 years old. Uh, none of had been on public display recently. He said the museum was working with the antiquarian community and art recovery experts to get the items back. Quote, we believe uh, we've been the victim of thefts over a long period of time, and frankly, more could have been done to prevent them, unquote, he said. Quote, but I promise you this, 
it is a mess that we're going to clear up, unquote. Museum director Hartwig Fisher announced his resignation yesterday. He apologized for failing to take seriously enough a warning from an art historian that artifacts from his collection were being sold on eBay. Deputy Director Jonathan Williams also said he would step aside while a review of the incident is conducted. And uh, finally, in the southern African state of Madagascar, a crush of people at a stadium left at least 12 dead and 85 injured fans attended the opening ceremony of the Indian Ocean Island Games authorities earlier today. Uh, the stampede at the Maham Masina Stadium in Antanarivo, the capital of the East African Island Nations, happened yesterday as people gathered in an interest for the official opening of the regional multi-sports event. Government spokesperson Lala Tiana Roko Tondrazafi said uh, earlier today that 33 of the injured remain in the HRJA hospital in Antanarivo. Prime Minister Kristen Insay uh, said yesterday that 11 people were in critical condition following the crush, which happened around 4.30 p.m. local time. Insay uh, visited the injured in the hospital. His office also issued a statement earlier today offering condolences and promising that the government would transfer the victims' bodies to their families and pay for the medical treatment of the injured. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligence discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency has been in existence uh, since uh, 1998. During that time period, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to uh, log on to our site, the Pan-African Newswire, just go to panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And also, if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, this worldwide radio broadcast, merely go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
the voices and the sound of the flirtations uh, with the track entitled Nothing But a Heartache. And uh, we're here at the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, on this early uh, Sunday morning, uh, August the 27th, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move uh, back into this massacre that occurred in Jacksonville, Florida earlier today. Uh, Mass shootings are a daily phenomenon in the United States, and uh, oftentimes it involves uh, racially uh, motivated uh, people who are intent on killing as many African Americans and Latin Americans as possible. And uh, let's listen uh, to uh, this report on developments in Jacksonville. We begin with breaking news tonight. Law enforcement sources confirming three victims and the shooter have all been killed in a shooting at the Dollar General on Kings Road near Edward Waters University. Good evening to you, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I'm Destiny McKeever. And I'm Anthony Austin. So we're still working to get all this information confirmed for you. We're waiting on a press conference from the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. But as Destiny just mentioned, we know from our sources that at least four people are dead tonight in this shooting. And our team coverage begins with Atia Collins. She's been on the scene since the shooting for several hours now. That's right, Anthony. I arrived here on scene around 1 o'clock, and when I got here, we saw helicopters flying around in the area. We saw SWAT officers out walking around with weapons. We saw armored vehicles being brought onto the scene, and here we are a couple hours later, Still a very active scene here behind me on King's Road. And go ahead and take a, take a look at this footage from earlier. We had multiple city leaders come out to this area, including Mayor Donna Deegan, Representative Angie Nixon, and we saw City Council Member Jacoby Pittman and Rockman Johnson. They came out and held a community prayer in the middle of the street, gathering the community together, many of them crying out, some of them fearful that their family members might be involved in this violence. A lot of people just praying for an end and for a peaceful solution here in this community. Now we had the chance to talk with Councilwoman Pittman who she was very emotional again having seen this violence before and she's calling on the community to come together. Take a listen. Our sheriff is doing the best that he can but as an alignment and resources to the community we got to keep working together. This right here today was a tragedy. Now again, as you heard, confirmed from our sources, at least four people dead, that including the shooter. And I talked to one woman who believes that her son-in-law is one of those victims. She has not confirmed that just yet, but very emotional from that woman who talked to me a little bit about the grief her family is feeling and also about her calls for peace to the community. We're going to talk back to you in the studio. Reporting, Atia Collins, First Coast News, on your side. All right, thank you so much, Thanks. Atia. We are still, again, waiting to hear back from that family, and we are still waiting to actually hear back from police as well about what took place in this shooting. That's right. This is just such a tragedy that we're reporting on tonight, on this Saturday, but we do want to check in right now with our Cheyenne Cole. She's actually joining us live from the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office because we're waiting for a news conference so we can get the information confirmed about exactly what happened on Kings Road, Cheyenne. 
That's right, Anthony. I followed Donna Deegan, Mayor Donna Deegan, over here just a couple hours ago when they let us know that this is where that press conference was going to be. You might be able to hear that JSO's helicopter that was over at the scene is now just landing on the roof here very loud. Um, and as I said, Mayor Donna Deegan is here. Her uh, director of strategic initiatives and press liaison, Melissa Ross, is here. And I also saw Clay County Sheriff uh, Michelle Cook come inside along with City Council Vice President Randy White just a few minutes ago. And I've been hearing that uh, some other agencies from across the country are calling in to JSO in order to speak with Sheriff T.K. Waters. I have not been able to uh, see him here yet, but like I said, I have seen several other people. I'm also hearing that we should expect to hear something about this here in about 30 minutes or so. So we will uh, get back with you and update you here in a minute. Reporting live in Jacksonville, Cheyenne Cole, First Coast News on your side. Cheyenne, thank you. And we want to continue our team coverage tonight with reaction from people who live near the scene of the shooting. Yeah, that's right. Renata De Gregorio joins us right now. Uh, she's live in that area. She's been talking with neighbors. I actually have been watching you through your live shot here um, as we've been waiting to go on and just heard some of that emotional sound you were able to get, Renata. Yeah, Destiny, people are really upset out here, and now they've been waiting in the heat for hours just to get some more information about their loved ones, about their neighbors. There were some times out here where people were yelling, they've been crying, it's gone really heated. Right now, though, you can see it's a lot more calmed down. We just had a prayer circle. Many pastors have been showing up. There were some representatives, city council members, also many people from the religious community here to stand with all of the neighbors here in this area. Now things are more calm and people have settled down, but they're still here waiting for information. I've also spoken with several people who say that they almost went and were in the area of the Dollar General going into the store right before this happened and then something held them up and they ended up not going inside. But like we said, a lot of people are here now and they're just trying to lend support to their neighbors. Here's a couple who we spoke with who heard what was going on and wanted to help with their neighborhood. And then um, then we turned on the news and we found out it was a mass shooting. We had to come to the bottom. It was like right behind us. This was our own neighborhood. We can't even go to the store. And they hope the rest of Jacksonville outside of this immediate community can also stand with them and support them and their neighbors. Right now, though, people are just waiting to find out more information about what happened and if their loved ones could have been involved. Back to you. Thank you so much, Renata. As we mentioned, we've been hearing from a lot of city council members as well as the mayor who was on scene earlier. Uh, mayor Deegan did speak about the shooting a short time ago. Here's what she had to say. Well, obviously it's heartbreaking, you know, it's a heartbreaking thing for our community for these things to happen. Um, anytime that you have a situation where a neighborhood has to deal with this type of tragedy, it's just awful. And it's happened in this neighborhood way too many times. So obviously we still need to find some better solutions. But I'm really out here today because I just want to show the community that, um, that we're all out here and we care, you know. Um, I, I just, I can't believe, it, it's just, it's just so awful that they have got to deal with this type of thing time and time again and we've got to find some some better ways of dealing with this violence it's just um it's just heartbreaking hmm. and we're going to continue to monitor this situation you can find the latest information on our website right now firstcoastnews.com also on the first coast news app 
If you don't have our app yet, we can send a link to your phone right now so you can download it. Just text the word APP, A-P-P, to 904-633-2402. Once again, we'll send a link. And you can download it to your phone so you can stay up to date. Welcome back. And that was a uh, news report in regard to developments in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, where a racially motivated massacre occurred on Saturday, uh, August the 26th, uh, in uh, that city in Florida. Right now, we're going to shift uh, to uh, the Republic of Zimbabwe and Southern Africa, where the results of the presidential election were just announced uh, with ZANU-PF uh, candidate and incumbent president. Emerson M. Nangagwa uh, winning another five-year term uh, to be president uh, in uh, that Southern African state. Let's listen to a statement that was put out uh, Friday uh, by the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission. I want to advise on the next steps to announcement of the presidential results. Polling in the harmonized elections ended on the 24th of August, 2023 following the extension of the period of voting by His Excellency, the President, through statutory instrument 151 of 2023, Proclamation 5 of 2023. The Zimbabwe Electoral Commission would like to thank the electorate for their tolerance, patience, understanding, and peaceful conduct of the elections. Most results for the National Assembly constituency and local authority elections have been finalized and declared at the various constituency and ward centers. These results are being aired on various media platforms for information to the public. Take note that the presidential results are yet to be announced as they follow the process that I will articulate below. Section 37, subsection 4 is read with section 110, subsection 3 of the Electoral Act, chapter 213, specifies the manner and form in which the results of the presidential elections are collected, compiled, and transmitted from polling station all the way to the National Coalition Center. Most polling stations have completed the process of counting and the results have been pasted outside polling stations. Copies of the polling station returns, the V-11s, have also been given to all election agents and observers present at the time of counting at each and every polling station. From polling station, results are transmitted to the Woods Collection Center where verification and collation takes place. The results thereof are then entered onto a presidential word return, which is the V23A, and pasted 
outside the center. This means the results of all polling stations are added together to come up with the word return. In order to enhance transparency and ownership of the electoral process, copies are also shared with election agents and observers present at the said ward collection center. The next steps involves transmitting the ward return to the constituents collection centers where verification and collection also takes place. At that point, the process involves completing a presidential constituency return, which is called V23B, consisting of all the words returns. These are the 20 V23As. Copies are also shared with election agents and observers present at the said constituency collection center for purposes of transparency. After collection of the results of the presidential constituency returns, which are the V23Bs, the results are transmitted to the provincial collection center where verification and collection of all constituency returns for the province take place. The results will be entered into a presidential provincial return, the V23C. Copies are also shared with election agents and observers present at the SAGE constituency collection center for purposes of transparency and ownership. Upon completion of collection of the provincial return V23C, the results are transmitted to the national collection center where verification and collection of all provincial returns for the province take place to obtain the initial results. After reconciling all provincial returns, V23Cs, with polling station and constituency returns, the final presidential results shall be reflected in a national presidential return reflecting the number of votes cast for each presidential candidate in the V23D form. Fellow Zimbabweans, this process is complemented by the process stipulated in section 110, subsection 3 of the Electoral Act, which specifies as follows. Receiving the 200 and nine constituency presidential returns V23Bs from all constituencies. Kindly take note that there are 210 constituencies. However, the Peter West constituency is election did not take place 
following the death of a cat. Let's take you here now. Zimbabwe's ruling ZANU-PF is briefing the media following legislative and presidential elections in that country. Let's take you live there now. In the electoral courts, it really made Zek work over time. Maybe mistakes were made. Definitely, there were also time delays. There were also logistical issues. And we are very happy that the precedent the supremacy of the people exercising their vote was the guiding principle in general and an extension was given to those polling booths where voting had not yet started because the voting material was late. It is in the same spirit that Zek may be much to the chagrin of the ruling party allowed certain members of the opposition who had 10 days to register as candidates but only left it at the last minute to register as candidates. They 10 days. They went there without their money, without their documentation complete. And Zek made a decision that the voting, their registration be extended until midnight when closure was at 4 o'clock on the 20th, was it the 21st? The 21st yeah. On the 21st. So here is a bias towards giving every Zimbabwean an opportunity to go and vote. Yes, there was a decision by the courts, the court, on certain candidates which was then overturned by the Constitutional Court. It was in the same spirit that the Constitutional Court felt that the vote is very important. We must give the people a chance to vote, rather than to say administrative issues hobbled the people from voting. I want to remind the foreigners who are here, the foreign correspondents, we are the first national liberation movement in modern times to fight an armed struggle to the point of victory, enforce an armistice on settler minority racist aggressors, and really invite the hand of their imperial sponsor, England, to host an armistice called the Lancaster House Agreement in 1979. Out of that, a near victory, a near victory army decided to lay the arms down, assembling dangerous assembly points, I mean gathering points, and give the people of Zimbabwe the free reign to choose whom should be their president. By the way, there was no voters' role in 1979. There wasn't. In the event, we assumed office by the ballot box in 1980, not by the bullet. Many other countries, I won't mention them, with national liberation movements, took it upon themselves that because they won the military victory, they are the government. We actually became a template for the United Nations. I'm a diplomat. I've served in several countries. I was in New York. We became a template of how to resolve issues after armed confrontation within a nation. So. 
I want to emphasize that our democratic credentials, one, they were hard end by our sacrifice, two, we actually exercised that democratic right to assume office. I want to dispense with the sanctimonious notions of some certain Western countries, particularly those with an imperial record which never gave Africa democracy, to try to say they can now become proselytizers of democracy. No, no. Colonial Britain never gave the blacks of this country, the African majority, a right to vote. It never did from 1890 when they occupied to until we won it by the armed struggle. So equally, Washington, a country which has got a history of slavery of, as, as the mainstay of its original economy, cannot come and say we are paragons of democracy, therefore you Zimbabwe, you must do things our way. And there is a sobering aspect of seeing the reality of seeing a former president in a mugshot, which is President Trump, because he was refusing to accept the outcome of an election. It just means that the road to democracy can be very difficult, even for those sanctimonists who are in Washington. It's a challenge. We accept the challenge, we try our best to make sure that we travel the road of democracy. That's why we have observers that's why we have principles from SADAC. Now, coming to the SADAC principles, we want to make it very clear. They are a product of the member states of SADAC. They are not administered by a particular individual who may become the head of the delegation. He is responsibility. So, we hear of a certain head of the delegation from a certain country of the SADAC mission, without prior consultation with his colleagues, fellow observer missions from sovereign states, and without them even having given reports back to their countries, even gone back to their secretariat, because the secretariat is the collective secretariat of SADAC. He decides to delve into matters which have nothing to do with his mandate. SADAC has got several committees which deal with various issues of SADAC, of Southern Africa development. It even has a constitutional review committee within its ambit. If anybody has got issues about the Zimbabwe laws, that is the relevant body within SADAC to come and question the statutes of the sovereign state of Zimbabwe. On a peer-to-peer -peer basis, as fellow accedes to, to the SADAC protocol of unit, of, of, of cooperation. It is not the duty of a particular individual to arrogate to himself the role of a constitutional review committee of the laws of Zimbabwe. So Mr. Nevers Mumba from Zambia, we call you to order. Uh, don't delve into the laws of Zimbabwe. If you've got issues with those, tell your relevant institutions, not the SADAC Observer Committee, your relevant institutions, to take it up with the SADAC Secretariat in Zambia. Otherwise, we know that he's a preacher, he comes here, he's got his friends, 
and you are seeing Hope not being and accosting himself with the triple C. We don't think that's what Zambia says about. He even goes further to try to make an issue about civic organizations and chooses some against the other in Zimbabwe. He favors Zesin and others. Then he castigates first on the other hand. This is a bias. I want to remind you, America had a civil war in 1861, starting in 1861. Because of the duty to protect the unit of America, certain of its citizens decided to form the American National Rifle Association. It's a historical product of the American evolution in its East, in, in, as it became a modern state. Today, the NRA is one of the most active of American civic bodies. To the extent that it now in, decides to lobby for certain politicians with a bias towards the Republicans. Not only that, you hear of periodic massacres of school children, of people in shopping centers, eh, because America says you've got a right to have a gun. We went through a civil war, we went through a liberation movement. One time the gun was my friend. The only other thing I could hold on besides my 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 anything. But we dropped we, we after independence, so we know guns in Zimbabwe. We don't we are, we don't have a, a, a gun culture. But the Americans have maintained a gun culture which is now causing so many massacres in their country. But nobody wants to speak about that from other countries. Now you want to make an issue about our historical circumstances. Our people are naturally vigilant because they fought a war and they will continue to be vigilant and they have institutions which are a continuation from that war like fact of our people like civic committees which are looking at security and intelligence to say, are we safe? I always emphasize the point. If in Zimbabwe you go into a rural area or certain places and you cannot be identified as to who you want to marry or not get married to, within three to four hours, the CIO, the intelligence organization of the country, will know. Where does that come from? It comes from the war. You hate to know who is who. Know your friend, know your enemy. If you don't, you die. That's what because there was all sorts of institutions of of terror, of murder, of disappearances, the Salus Scouts, the Special Air Services of all these institutions, the Fumorevan, these are historical institutions. It is left difficult in rural areas. So vigilance is natural in Zimbabwe people. So to make an issue about FAS and other historical institutions about Zimbabwe is to question the origin of the state. And for Mr. Nevers Mumba, I want to remind him that our original training about Zimbabwe defense forces came from the Zambia. We were hosted in Zambia. We were hosted in Tanzania. Maybe because it's from a later day party, he can go to the archives of his country and really understand the role of Zambia in the birth of what is now the Zimbabwe Defense Forces.
I want to politely remind him to go and read the history of this country before he starts castigating Zimbabwean entities. It's not right. Every country has got its own history. That's why I made an allusion to America and its National Rifle Association. The Americans had actually copied it from England, which is also a National Rifle Association. So the idea of vigilance in communities is not new. And the idea is not new. It is the same as this Right, we come out of that ZANU-PF briefing, of course, due to that poor quality. Essentially, Zimbabwe's ruling party briefing the media there um, following the legislative and presidential elections in that country. And as counting continues and results start trickling in, the party's director was the one briefing the media there, information and publicity, Farai Marapira. And he says that whilst the party does not know who won, ultimately the people of Zimbabwe would have won. He's also said that those who are criticizing the elections should take it up with the right channels. They should take it with aesthetic. More than 6 million people were registered to vote in these polls. Voting started on Wednesday and it was extended to Thursday due to a lack of voting ballots, amongst others. Obviously, there was also problems with the voting role as well. Observers have been scathing so far in terms of their preliminary reports and their insights into these elections. Um, essentially, the European Union has been scathing of the poll. It says the election fell short uh, when measured against certain aspects, including regional and international standards. But we continue to monitor those results trickling in from Zimbabwe, and we will give you an update as soon as we have it. Welcome back. And uh, what we heard uh, were reports on the recently held elections in the Republic of Zimbabwe, uh, where President Emerson Mnangagwa was reelected to office uh, for another five-year term. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week.
voice of uh, Thelma Houston, and don't leave me uh, this way. You are listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for early Sunday morning, August 27th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to move uh, into our Black August segment, and this is a lecture by Professor David Blight of Yale uh, University uh, discussing the early phase of the United States uh, Civil War. And of course, uh, the United States Civil War uh, was a development uh, during uh, the mid to late uh, 19th century, between 1861 and 1865. Nonetheless, uh, the tension had been rising precipitously. Let's listen to this lecture. The ones that get televised and the ones that don't, the ones where we get to see the coffins and the ones where we don't have their romance and their reality. It seems to be an endless, in the face of whatever modernization of war, media coverage of war, the devastating critique of war as an individual human experience by so many great poets and writers for a century and a half, it doesn't seem to matter what changes or what happens, but youth grow up to be excited about war. Ambrose Bierce once wrote that only, I quote him, only fools forget the causes of war. But then it's the same Ambrose Bierce, one of the most, certainly, I think, the unique American writer about the Civil War in so many ways, a kind of bitter, brutal realist who was wounded three times in the war, hit in the head with a shell shot from a cannon, should have died, crushed in part of his skull, which may explain Ambrose Bierce, actually. But it's Bierce who also wrote that lovely little line where he said, the soil of peace is thickly sown with the seeds of war. Get too much peace for a while and people get anxious. Americans, when this war broke out, embraced it with a fever that is uh, an enthusiasm and an almost um, undefinable joy. Uh, that may be a little tough to understand today or appreciate. It's only in the wake of war or in the face of real war, of course, that people get reflective. At the end of it all, at the end of it all, in Lincoln's second inaugural, is this famous passage. And by the way, there may be more book titles drawn from this one-page-and-a-half speech than any other piece of prose ever penned by an American. I mean, I could just start ticking off the book titles that come out of phrases. The latest is a Jim McPherson's latest book of essays called This Mighty Scourge of War. At some point, we will run out. It's only a page and a half, I mean, after all. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, this is Lincoln, March 1865, remembering March 1861, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. 
While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, hmm, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish, and the war came. Well, now that's Lincoln's argument, isn't it? Once I would make war, the other side would accept war. We're going to revisit that moment in just a minute. Lincoln's so-called April policy of April 1861, his maneuvers against Jefferson Davis's maneuvers about the single fort in Charleston Harbor where the Civil War would actually begin. Did Lincoln maneuver the South into the first shot? Always been a question unanswered. Um, quickly, let me revisit with you. Uh, whoops, sorry. Let's zoom out. Um, this question of causation, I left that in a bit of abeyance. Uh, there was, a, there was a school of interpretation of this war that has had a tiny, tiny, interesting little revival of late uh, in the hands of great historians, people I greatly admire, like Edward Ayers. And you've read two of his essays for this week, worrying about the Civil War. Um, and uh, my colleague here skips out uh, in a different way there's been a, a kind of a little revival of this notion that the Civil War might have been preventable, that it might have been needless. Um, no one is arguing that as, as vigorously as James G. Randall and Avery Craven and a host of other American historians did in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, up to World War II. World War II is going to really reshape that interpretation and put it on the run. But I wanted to just visit it a moment because it shows us not only that historical interpretations, as will be yours, are influenced by one's own times, one's own experiences, one's own assumptions, one's own sentiments, and how the world shapes us. Sometimes it comes out of conviction. The Needless War School of Interpretation was led by James Randall and Avery Craven. In Avery Craven's case, he was a Quaker. But these were men deeply influenced by the utter disillusionment of World War I. They came of age and cut their teeth on history at a time when the world had collapsed into what seemed to be in the end an inexplicable, meaningless war. There's that unforgettable scene at the very beginning of... Uh, the Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. No one reads her anymore. She was at one point the most popular historian in America. Uh, um, she wrote about the Middle Ages. She wrote about World Wars. She wrote about all kinds of things. Anyway, at the very opening of The Guns of August, 
There's a scene where an, a, a German general meets a French general somewhere in the mid or late 1920s. And one general says to the other, uh, Sir, why did it happen? And the other general says, I don't know. I really don't know. In the wake of the Bay of Pigs and before the Cuban Missile Crisis, President John Kennedy gave a copy of the Guns of August and ordered every member of his National Security Council and his cabinet to read it. And he quoted that passage. And he said, Never will we, never shall we be caught having to answer that question about war. I don't know. In that kind of disillusionment, an interpretation that finds sheer politics and fanaticism and, you know, uh, uh, aggressive emotionalism, an overblown kind of, uh, what did Randall call it, unctuous fury as the essential explanation of why the war came in 1861 can make a certain sense. There's a beguiling quality to that argument when we look at the folly of human history and the folly of human nature. It all changed in so many ways in the wake of the Second World War, a war that was all about ideology, all about racism, all about the survival of Enlightenment ideas against against fascism and so on and so on. And a generation led by such historians as Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and many, many, many others came to see the American Civil Wars coming when they started writing in the 1950s and 60s and into the 70s as what they would call an irrepressible conflict. And this array of arguments, they all get kind of lumped under this heading, irrepressible conflict thesis, began to flow from American historians. Don Fehrenbacher may have captured that interpretation best in a line when he said, The Civil War came and it was fought um, to bring, how do you put it, to to bring great national progress at great national cost. I've never been entirely comfortable with that idea. You know, well, it all had to happen. It was bloody and horrible and terrible and all those people died, but it, we all got better for it. That never, never, never sits very well with me, especially when you study the memory of the war and aftermath. But what happened in post-World War II scholarship, and it's still there, it's still at the heart of how we try to explain this most pivotal event, one of the most pivotal events of American history, is a certain respect for moral questions, a certain respect for ideas, and and the notion that politics is sometimes about something. Now, that's a utterly, horribly streamlined way of saying you don't find many historians anymore who argue from the needless war perspective. Although, what you do find is a kind of roller coaster ride through American scholarship about the, the Civil War, sometimes deeply influenced by Vietnam, and sometimes deeply influenced even today 
some have argued about Harry Stack, uh, um, Skip Stout's book. Um, if you know Professor Stout, he has a remarkable new book out <clears throat> uh, about whether the American Civil War was a just war. And I will revisit that question at the uh, end, near the end of this course, and use a couple of his arguments. It's a controversial book. It's an interesting book. It's a question we've never truly asked about this good war. Was it just? Does it fit? Does it fulfill the principles of just war doctrine? Can it? Does it matter? All right. Um, but back to April 1861. Whether it was just and just why it became so bloody and so prolonged, we're going to take up over and over. But it surely did happen. And it began, I don't know if that map works terribly well. <laughs> Probably doesn't. It's the best I can do this morning. It is a map of Charleston Harbor, which had their last remaining federal installation, fort, around the coast of the American South, still in federal hands by March and April of 1861. The seven states of the seceded South, the Deep South, had begun to seize coastal forts. They'd begun to seize federal arsenals. They seized post offices. And they seized federal courts. Now, I guarantee you today, if you seized a federal court office building, and if, particularly if you killed anybody in the act, or if you took over a U.S. post office, uh, I know nobody cares about post offices, because you do everything online. You know, those people down there on, on, uh, on Elm Street, you may... Such sweet people. The idea of somebody taking over that post office at gunpoint is, is not, not a thought. But if you did that today, I mean, you'd be in federal prison in no time and you could be charged with treason. Now, we can come back to that issue of treason when the course ends uh, and revisit it if you want um, about this war. But by and large, every federal installation in a seceded state, the seven seceded states, had been seized by those states, confederate states, except Fort Sumter. And Fort Sumter was a brand new fort. Um, oh God, it can't be more than 200 and maybe 300 yards across diameter. It had just been built in the late 1850s as part of the coastal fort system. Uh, big, huge, high stone walls, about 20 feet high. It sits out at the mouth of Charleston Harbor, here. It is nearly a mile from Fort Sumter to the tip of the town of Charleston, which is here. From the Battery Park in Charleston to the fort is nearly a mile. You can almost not see it. Um, there is today a monument. I wish I had a slide of it to show you. 
It's one of my favorite, for strange reasons, Civil War monuments. There are thousands upon thousands of Civil War monuments. Many of them are so generic you don't even notice them. This one you notice. It's right at the tip of Battery Park in Charleston, where they used to hang pirates. It looks right out at Fort Sumter. It was put up in the early 20th century. It's a Confederate monument of a winged Roman soldier. I think Roman because the helmet, I'm told, is Roman. He's some combination of, of a winged creature and a soldier. He's about four times the size of life. He is looking out at Fort Sumter. And the inscription around the bottom says, to the defenders of Charleston, quote, Count them happy who for their faith and courage endured a great fight. I'm going to repeat that. Count them happy who for their faith and courage endured a great fight. On our monuments of this war, almost all of them, you will find almost nothing about what caused the war or even about what its consequences were. Almost all of them. It was just a great fight. And the dead are happy. Well, what to do about Fort Sumter? Uh, in his first inaugural, March 4, 1861, Lincoln promised, he said, promised to, quote, hold, occupy, and possess remaining federal property. Now think about it. If Lincoln and the Republicans are going to make a stand against secession, and once he finally comes into office, by the way, the, the day he entered office, all that federal property had been taken by those seven states. It's already done. He inherits this situation. Now, he could have backed away and continued to try to negotiate, and there was a compromise negotiation under John J. Crittenden, a Kentucky senator in Washington, for a while going on in late February. It, it never came up with anything new. They were going to try again a geographic boundary out in the West with slavery, although don't forget the Dred Scott decision has <laughs> declared that illegal. Um, they were going to try to, to rub up something again about fugitive slaves to satisfy the South. They just couldn't come up with any new ideas. And Lincoln could have tried to continue to hold compromise, negotiation conventions. He could have. Or he could have held firm to the Republican position that secession was illegal and impossible and unconstitutional and had to be stopped. But if he lets Fort Sumter go, there was a garrison there led by a, a, a colonel named uh, Anderson. If he just lets it go, in effect he's saying, well, maybe all that seizure of federal property is legitimate. Uh, maybe secession is possible. <laughs> right. It was about the only place he could have taken a stand if he was going to take a stand. Well, Lincoln was buying time, and he took a whole month of time before he acted. He was hoping for what he called privately, quote, voluntary reconstruction. He was hoping for saner minds in the South to some, you know, a, a union spirit in the South to somehow take hold. 
And there's much been said over the years about Lincoln overestimating Union sentiment across the South. He may have indeed overestimated Union sentiment, but there was a good deal of it. There were a lot of frightened people in the upstate counties of Virginia and western Virginia and western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee and northern Georgia. Those Unionist pockets of the South were scared about this because they have to make terrible decisions now. If this goes goes to war, who do they go with and stay home? Well, Colonel, I'm sorry, Major Robert Anderson had about 80 men. He was from Kentucky. That's some slaveholding in his background, but... He'll never end up with the South. Uh, Commissioners from South Carolina had come to Washington as early as January of 1861 to negotiate that specific fort's release. They wanted it. Federal government had basically stonewalled it. President Buchanan, the lame duck president, tried actually to reinforce the fort. And by reinforce the fort, I mean send food to the garrison of troops. Um, between January 5 and 9 of 1861, Buchanan, the only act Buchanan even tried to make about secession, he was just begging to get out of office, Buchanan sent a ship called the Star of the West full of supplies down the coast of Fort Sumter to feed the men. Shore batteries around the harbor actually opened up fire, and one had a direct hit on the ship. But nothing came of it. Note. It's January 5 to 9. South Carolina was the only seceded state. It wasn't until the 11th that Mississippi went, and then Georgia, and then about six others in the next three weeks. Lincoln's April policy, if you like, was a process of trying to buy time, and if there was to be war or firing or shooting about Fort Sumter, he was trying to make sure the shots were fired by the South. Now, there were hawks in his administration. There were hawks in the Republican Party who wanted him to act faster. One of them wrote to Lincoln privately and said, quote, give up Sumter, sir, and you are as dead politically as John Brown is physically. Newspapers across the North, strongly Republican newspapers, started to print headlines like, Do we have a government? Wanted a policy. Or, Come to the point, Mr. Lincoln. And so on. People were ready now. Do something. Now, his Secretary of State, duly appointed in great part as Doris Kearns Goodwin is shown and argued in her recent best-selling book, Team of Rivals, was William H. Seward, Lincoln's principal rival for the the nomination of the Republican Party. Lincoln not only put a few of his enemies in his own cabinet to control them and use them politically, he in the end made an absolute best friend out of William Seward, but not yet. Seward was a dove on this. Seward wanted to negotiate. He urged evacuation of the fort, and then he said leave the door open to voluntary reconstruction as it might take hold around the south. 
as Southerners might see that this new Lincoln administration was willing to tar. And as in all that Seward did, Seward launched a crazy plan to declare war on Spain and France to direct America's attention outward to the world and therefore cause national unity. <laughs> Wag the dog, right? See the movie? Let's just go to war with Spain and France and all those crazy Southerners will realize, oh, the nation is at risk. Lincoln immediately uh, rejected this idea, although unfortunately it got out there and foreign ministers of Spain and France needed explanations. Thank you very much. Seward also made private promises as Secretary of State to Southerners that Sumter would ultimately be evacuated. Just hang in there, just wait. When Lincoln found that out, he said to Seward, in effect, shut up. Now, Lincoln tried in his approach to Sumter to separate reinforcement of these troops, a military act, from provisions, a humanitarian act, and he wanted to stress the latter. He notified, finally, Southern officials. He never referred to them as Confederate governments. He just notified South Carolina, he said, that he was going to send food and provisions to hungry soldiers. Now, who could be against that? Just going to feed some people. He called it a mission of humanity, bringing food to hungry men, quote-unquote. But the Confederate leadership took this as a direct challenge, and Lincoln did indeed send a ship down the coast about the 8th or 9th of April, no, 6th or 7th of April, uh, 1861, and the prolonged suspense finally came to an end. That one ship was provisioned with food. Now, the truth is there were some arms and some weapons in the hold as well. In the end, it isn't going to matter a lot. The Confederate cabinet met under Jefferson Davis on the 9th of April, and they made a decision that if Lincoln tried to sail that ship into Charleston Harbor, they would fire on it. On the 11th of April, Major Anderson in the fort was given a chance to surrender by the authorities in Charleston. He refused. And at 4.30 in the morning in the dark of night, April 12, 1861, about 100 cannon from all around Charleston Harbor, 100 federal cannons originally, <laughs> now seized by the Confederate States of America, opened up and bombarded, Charleston, uh, bombarded Fort Sumter for 35 hours. Anderson's men hid underground in dugouts. They'd been well prepared for this, and none of them died in the bombardment of thousands of shells lobbed into the fort. The relief expedition arrived out at the mouth of the harbor during the firing, and it never got to the fort. On the 14th of April, after the bombardment ended, Anderson was forced to surrender the fort, to take down the United States flag. A brand new Confederate States flag with stars and bars was put up. 
And then Anderson's men held uh, a gun salute, 21-gun salute. And the first casualties of the war occurred when two of Anderson's troops were killed when a powder keg blew up because it was too close to one of the muskets. Four Aprils later, 620,000 dead and 1.2 million wounded. The flag will go back up at Fort Sumter. On April 14, 1862, it'll be attended by William Lloyd Garrison and 3,000 freed people. But that's a long way away. The day after the firing on Fort Sumter, all across the country, the headline was war. And Lincoln sent an executive order, not declaring war. Lincoln's position on this was clear, he, to him anyway, that no nation can declare war on itself. He never accepted secession as legal or constitutional or appropriate. But he called for 75,000 volunteers to, quote, put down a domestic insurrection. And in the Constitution, the President of the United States is given control over the military to put down domestic insurrection. He called it a rebellion. Now, the most, immediate, the most important immediate result of the firing on Fort Sumter, of course, was the secession of the Upper South, part of the Upper South. Where's my map? Well, oh, I apologize. I should have had that map ready. Well, you'll remember the map. Four more southern states, slave states, will secede in the wake of Sumter. The most pivotal, of course, was Virginia. But note, Virginia had held a secession convention back in February and decisively voted against secession. After Fort Sumter, in this state of war, hysteria and, and fever and fear, and under now this new argument, that what the Lincoln administration had really done was an act of coercion against the South, Coercion. Now, the feeding of some 80 soldiers in a fort was being interpreted as coercion, okay. But Virginia quickly, overnight, held a new secession convention. Actually, its state legislature held it. And it voted 88 to 55. Note the vote. <laughs> 88 to 55. Lots of those no votes, almost all of those no votes, coming from the western part of Virginia. West Virginia didn't exist yet. The western part of Virginia where there was very little slavery and some of the upper counties of Virginia. April 17th, only three days after the surrender of Fort Sumter, Virginia seceded from the Union. By May 6th, Arkansas seceded by a vote of 69 to 1 in secession convention. North Carolina on May 20th voted to... Now look where North Carolina is now. It's between Virginia and South Carolina. What are they going to do? They voted unanimously in convention to secede. And finally on June 8th, 
by a two-to-one vote of a popular referendum. These were done different ways in different states. On, in a popular referendum, Tennessee, in a two-to-one vote, approximately, seceded from the Union. The Confederacy was now 11 states. It would never really be any more than that. But there was great tension about what Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, and Missouri would actually do. Lincoln is reported to have said that he hoped to have God on his side, but he was certain he wanted Kentucky. Now, there's been a whole flurry of emails recently on the slavery and history network of historians online trying to trace that quote just in the past couple of weeks. And the truth is nobody can actually find it anywhere. It's one of those many, many, many probably apocryphal Lincoln quotes. He must have probably said something like it somewhere. But I just couldn't resist using it. I've used it for so many years. So, footnote. Might be apocryphal, okay? He did need Kentucky, uh, whatever he said. All of those states were deeply divided about what to do and what they will do in the war will prove that, and they will be terrible, horrible places to be geographically, emotionally, physically in the war. Maryland was horribly divided. Note where it is. It's right above Washington, D.C. Approximately 50,000 white men fought for the Union in Maryland in the Civil War. Approximately... I'm sorry, about 50,000 white men in Maryland fought in the Civil War, 30,000 on the Union side, 20,000 on the Confederate side, and of those 30,000 on the Union side, 9,000 of them were African Americans. Kentucky had about 50,000 men fight for the Union, and about 35,000 men fight for the Confederacy. And per capita, Kentucky... Uh, produced more African-American soldiers for the Union Army than any other state, 24,000 total. Missouri, the numbers are even greater. In Missouri, about 80,000 men fought for the Union, about 30,000 fought for the Confederacy, and there were about 3,000 that weren't on either side. They were guerrillas looking for the best payday. Early versions of Jesse James without ideology. Later, Jesse James got real ideology, though. That's another story. And folks, especially in those states, this was immediately... You've heard all the cliches about how it was a fratricidal conflict and a brother's war. Immediately, it was a brother's war. And thousands of families in April and May and June of 1861... Brothers and fathers looked each other in the eye and had to decide what they would do. Henry Clay had seven grandsons in Kentucky. Three fought for the Union and four fought for the Confederacy. John J. Crittenden of Kentucky, of, he was a senator of the Crittenden Compromise efforts in the secession winter had one son who became a general in the Union Army and one son who became a general in the Confederate Army. Both survived 
And I've always wanted to know about Crittenden family reunions, but I've never looked into it. Mrs. Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln, who was, of course, born and raised in Kentucky, had four brothers who all fought for the Confederacy and three brothers-in-law who fought for the Confederacy. It will lead later to all kinds of charges of... uh, of well, some charges about treason against her and so on, sympathies for the South and so on and so on. John C. Pemberton from Pennsylvania became a Confederate general and was ultimately the general who surrendered Vicksburg to Grant in 1863. George Thomas was Virginia-born, old slaveholding family, but he never resigned his commission And he became known as the Rock of Chickamauga. The Union general who won the Battle of Chickamauga was a Virginian. And these stories go on and on and on. There's the story of Clifton and William Prentice. One of them fought in the 6th Maryland Infantry, a Union regiment. The other fought in the 2nd Maryland Infantry, a Confederate regiment. Both were wounded at Petersburg on April 2 on the same day, 1865, in the last week of the war, and they died in cots right next to each other in a field hospital. And the list goes on and on. Now, when people went to war in 1861, what did they say they were doing? What did they say were their aims? What were their reasons? We have thousands of diary entries and letters and editorials and all sorts of things to draw upon. But on the northern side, what you find that summer is not only the sense that this will be a short war, and that's a preface worth pointing out, But people would say over and over they were fighting for the flag. They were fighting for the Union. They were fighting for the Constitution. They were fighting to save the Republic. They were fighting to, quote, save the government. And you you keep hearing those phrases and you you keep thinking, man, these are abstractions. What were they really doing? You keep reading and you keep hearing them say the same damn thing. Well... There's a lot of good scholarship on this now that shows us that in 1860s America, the U.S. Constitution was important to people. They saw it as a kind of protection. They saw it as a source of social order. They saw the American nation as now something they were directly experiencing. Millions were directly experiencing the government as never before in those debates of the 1850s. And as I've said before now, voter turnout just zoomed in the 1850s to 75 and 80 percent in each general election from 1852 on. Philip Paladin, in a marvelous book about this, has said that the Constitution and the government for so many Northerners was like a shield of protection. And the Southern secession now was not just a threat to this government, it was a threat to social order itself. And it therefore had to be stopped. A New Hampshire farmer who became a buck private in 1861 said, quote, The question now is country or no country, liberty or slavery. 
There's a beautiful clarity to that, isn't there? Now, I don't know what he said after Bull Run or after Antietam or after Spotsylvania if he survived. A 50-year-old railroad contractor named Robert McAllister threw down his lucrative job in 1861 and enlisted at age 50, quote, to help us put down this wicked and unjustifiable rebellion. Our country and property is worth nothing if we don't, nor will life be secure. This is all over people's letters. They said they were fighting for liberty. Of course, so did Southerners. Now, another argument here, and again, Phil Paladin has made this better than anyone, I think, is he's argued that Southerners and Northerners have sort of come to view the U.S. Constitution, this, you know, this document we live under, in different ways. That Northerners had come to see the Constitution as a kind of protector, much violated now by Kansas-Nebraska Act, Dred Scott decision, etc. Whereas Southerners had come to see that Constitution more as a destroyer, as something to fear. It might if the wrong people get hold of it, <laughs> begin to attack or erode their society. There were a lot of people, particularly in the North, but then quickly in the South as well, who, when this war broke out, began to see it in terms of cosmic dualism, good and evil. God was entering history. Right away, Christian America began to interpret this in millennial terms. God had a quarrel with America. People start arguing, and they're going to really be arguing this after the enormous bloodshed of 62 and 63 when they have to try to explain why this is happening. They're going to say God has an appointment with America, and he's going to decide whose sins are worse. Now, on the southern side, as I said, people have to make tough choices, horrible choices. Who do they go with? They join their neighbors or oppose their neighbors. Mary Chestnut, the great diarist from South Carolina, who indeed kept the most famous diary by a southern woman. There are many of them. She remembered March and April 1861 this way, and here we have another kind of beautiful clarity. We separated, said Mary Chestnut, because of incompatibility of temper, we are divorced north from south because we hate each other so much. Okay, Mary. I get it. Divorce papers. You hate us. Walter Nugent, a Mississippi lawyer who did not own slaves, nevertheless declared in 1861 that without slave labor, now the non-slaveholders arguing this, that without slave labor the country would be, quote in his words, a barren, waste, and desolate plain. We can only live and exist by this species of labor, and hence I am willing to continue the fight to the last. Well, Nugent hadn't seen any fight yet, but never mind. Well, in the end, the South, from the highest ranks of Jefferson Davis on down to Buck Privates, are all going to say they were fighting for their liberty. Everybody was fighting for their liberty. 
And when blacks get into this thing in 62 and 63, uh, they're fighting for their liberty too. Everybody, as Lincoln later said, everybody declared for liberty. Now, make no mistake, I love to quote my friend Uriah over there on the stone wall in Woolsey. And I walk every time, every morning on the way over here to class, I go by and I rub my finger on his name for, I don't know, good luck or something. If I teach here long enough, it's probably going to wear off. But everybody in the Union Army wasn't a Uriah Parmalee. In fact, the vast majority were not going to free the slaves just yet. There's a story of a of a Yankee soldier in Virginia in 1861 who encounters a slave woman and, that, and he's taken that woman's goods. And that woman says, well, wait a minute, aren't you coming here to help us? And uh, he answered her and said, um, no, he answered her and said, no, <laughs> the woman says, we were told you are coming here to help us and instead you steal from us. And the soldier replied, you're a goddamn liar. I'm fighting for $14 a month in the Union. Now, there's a beautiful clarity in that, too. I ain't here to free you. Oh, I got behind on this outline, didn't I? That's okay. That's actually just fine. Um, when we resume next... Don't, don't leave yet. When we resume next Tuesday... I will talk a little bit about West Point and what happened at West Point when Union and Confederate or Southern and Northern men begin to leave and then we'll begin the war. We'll talk about comparative strengths and so on. But let me leave you for today and the weekend, if you don't mind, with Walt Whitman again. Whitman's opening poem of his immortal collection called Drum Tap in a kind of agonizing way, may have captured what was in the heads of most Americans in 1861. To the drum taps prompt, he writes, the young men falling in and arming, the mechanics arming, the troll, the jack plane, the blacksmith's hammer tossed aside with precipitation. The blood of the city is up, armed, armed, the cry everywhere. The flags flung out from the steeples of churches and from all the public buildings and stores. The tearful parting. The mother kisses her son. The son kisses the mother. Loathe is the mother to part, yet not a word does she speak to detain him. War. An armed race is advancing. The welcome for battle. No turning away now. War. Be it weeks, months, or years. An armed race is advancing, and it welcomes it. Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, that was uh, excerpts from a lecture uh, from David Blight uh, on uh, the United States Civil War. And uh, we're here uh, this early morning hour of Sunday, uh, August 27th, uh, 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And, of course, uh, we are here uh, to 
commemorate uh, Black August, and uh, that, uh, of course, is uh, one of the very, very important uh, developments uh, as it relates uh, to uh, the situation uh, between 1861 and uh, 1865. Right now, we're going to listen to an interview uh, with... Um, Professor Clinton on women's slavery and the Civil War. Welcome to Talking History. I'm Amy Merle Taylor, and I'm happy to be here with Catherine Clinton, who is one of our nation's experts on the history of the South, uh, specifically of women, slavery, and the Civil War. She's the author of, from my count, over 20 books on these subjects, and we are happy to have her here this afternoon. Welcome, Dr. Clinton. Thank you, Amy. Now, you have been writing about the South for well, I didn't even count how many years, but for a number of years. And about 30. About 30, about 30 years, okay. And I'm curious about what initially drew you to study the South. Are you from the South yourself? Well, when I'm speaking in, in the South about Southern history, and that question often comes up, what got you interested in Southern history? So when you're among Southerners, you just say, well, I was born naturally bright, and they usually cotton onto that kind of answer. But I really think growing up in Missouri, which was the borderlands, I really learned a lot about, of course, the importance of regionalism, the importance of place. And the South was the most distinctive region in the country when I was growing up. And I think it has persisted in having a certain flavor, a certain intrigue. And that's something that has always really interested me. Uh, I don't think it's... um, necessary to lay claim to southern roots to do southern history. Maybe I should invent a middle name so I can have three names like all the great distinguished historians, but I do think it is important to establish yourself. And since I started out originally doing African-American studies at Harvard and and um, not being black myself, it was always raised, why are you white and studying blacks? And I'd say, well, do we have to be very, very old to do medieval history. I mean, I really do believe that we we are intellectually attracted to certain topics. And of course, slavery and its legacy in American history was so important to me growing up in the 60s and watching really the transformation of American society. And it's still transforming. It's still a part of our life. But I think it's the compelling sense of region and place and its legacy in America today. Mm-hmm. Do you think being an outsider, you might say, or somebody who does not self-identify as Southern gives you a particularly interesting vantage point, or can you study it in a different way? I love the concept of insider-outsider, indeed, because I have chosen Southern history, and I'm so interested in it. I've been welcomed into the fold. People have been very kind, and yet, at the same time, when I'm in um, inside that fold, I often look at it a different way. So one of my earliest studies, my MA thesis, and and uh, two of my books are on Fanny Kemble, who was an insider-outsider. She was a British actress. She came to the United States. She was a great sensation. She married um, someone who inherited the second largest slaveholding estate in Georgia, and she ended up going down there to visit on the Sea Islands, and she was a plantation mistress 
her husband owned the vast estates of the Butler Empire, but she was also a self-identified abolitionist. So the insider-outsider status is something that has interested me. And I, I do believe, for example, that we need to be understanding and empathetic, but we also need to be critical. So maybe that's why I've never explored my roots, but tried to really be fascinated by other people's roots. Mm -hmm. Well, one subject that you have um, brought a critical eye to are women like Fanny Campbell, the white women of the antebellum South. And that was one of your first books, or your your very first book. My first book. The Plantation Mistress. Yes, which came out of my work um, at Princeton as a graduate student. And it was something I kept waiting for people to really uh, stop mythologizing and caricaturing the white Southern female in the South. But I found in all that bounty of literature on the planter class and on slavery and slaveholding, really the missing element to me when I began my study in the early 70s was the plantation mistress. And I do think we've had marvelous studies, really interregional, deep south, uh, city south. We've looked at so many different questions. We, we even have some uh, black slaveholding women that we can look at. We, we, we really have a vast and various literature. And yet, wherever I go, the myth persists. There's still images. I, I do think at the beginning of the 21st century, we're beginning to see a new kind of woman, but I argue it's coming out of popular culture. Perhaps. But why do you think that is? Why does this image persist for so long? Is it just Margaret Mitchell was so influential? Well, certainly there, the, it was the most popular historical novel of the 20th century. It had an international following. Gone with the Wind, that is. Gone with the Wind remains a pull. You can go visit the Margaret Mitchell House in Atlanta, which has a center for Southern literature where authors come and speak almost every week of the year. It's a marvelous institution. But when I see Japanese tourists visiting, Swedish tourists visiting, I think of the enormous popular pull. Of course, people forget that the the pull came out of it being written during a worldwide depression. And the pull was the talk of a plucky heroine pulling herself up and out of this depression and triumphing over all sorts of obstacles. She was scheming. She was clever. She was bright. Um, some people have characterized her less generously than I do. But I, I find that fascinating. However, I would say, has she been fully replaced by um, Ada in Cold Mountain or Ruby, which is a recent, not as popular movie, but certainly very compelling portraits of Southern women? And I, for one, was when the book came out by Charles Fraser, I was so taken with its its vivid portrayal of the home front. And again, in Civil War studies, we've had a great transformation over the past quarter century. You've been a part of it, publishing essays, and I'm happy to say I'm really pleased to see the complexity. I mean, you're writing about what Southern women were asking the government, demanding from the government during the Civil War. When I published Southern Families, in which your essay appears, it was something that we were still interested in the divisions of the Civil War. We're still interested in family life, and those things are still very much a part, I think, of our modern landscape. So the myths are mixing in with, I think, new realities, grittier realities. And of course, at the end of the 20th century, we could finally confront Thomas Jefferson may have fathered children by a slave. We're now getting into the murky details, did George Washington as well? Uh, we certainly know that his wife's half-sister, um, Ann Dandridge, lived with Martha 
Washington, her half-sister, this, this mixed-race child. So the whole concept of the mixed-race family is a part of our legacy of slavery, is something that I worked on very early in my, in my work, and I'm continuing to work on. I'm, I'm pleased to see that it's, I think, something, sadly, that's still a part of our legacy. There's a great project at Brandeis, um, Feminist Sexual Ethics, a three-year project on slavery's long shadow, and women looking at women in Muslim culture, women in Christian culture, but certainly women in African-American culture in America, and how slavery shapes your lives. And I'm writing about what I call um, sexual hypocrisy from Thomas Jefferson to Strom Thurmond, that I think the appearance of Strom Thurmond's daughter on the front page of the New York Times really struck me as a legacy of slavery and something still a part of our culture, something we need to explore. That's interesting. That definitely follows a theme, it seems, in your works of, as you say, getting beyond the mythology and getting into the really gritty realities of the South and the very complex realities. And I'm curious... Um, well, I did just write a book on a Southern woman that some people really don't recognize as part of that theme. Harriet Tubman. Of course. Born in the South enslaved as a child, who liberated herself. And I'm really not interested in putting Harriet Tubman qua Southern woman, but rather a mythologized character, someone who's this mammy, Mm -hmm. children's bookshelf, underground railroad, fable figure. Mm -hmm. And in my biography, I try and write about her not simply as a conductor on the Underground Railroad, but to go back to the period and look and see that she was known at the time by the contemporary term an abstract. Doctor. She went behind enemy lines, and she established those enemy lines. The slave power was an enemy to be defeated. She saw the Civil War as the Underground Railroad coming above ground and moving forward so that there would be a great uprising. And this is part of, I think, the new trend of looking at the Civil War as enslaved persons taking control, making determinations. Indeed, some people have gone so far as to say the aspect of the Civil War as a slave rebellion has been neglected, and we need to really look at this. Now, I don't quite go that far in Harriet Tubman, but in new work on the Underground Railroad, I'm pleased to see that we're following this course. And also that she lived a long and rich life, dying on uh, the anniversary of her death is this week. March 10th is Harriet Tubman Day. She died in 1913, and between the end of the Civil War and 1913, she was a philanthropist. She established the Harriet Tubman home. She was someone who was concerned about race and gender. She worked for women's suffrage. She worked for disabled veterans. So I think it's important to go beyond the myth of the underground, uh, uh, that she was simply a runaway slave helping other slaves. She was, indeed, but she was much more than that. And so I hope that my book will really explore those topics and bring her off the children's shelf and into the pantheon of American heroes. And it's one, if I understand correctly, one of the first or the first adult biography of Tubman since the early 20th century. Is that correct? The last biography of her was published in 1943 by a journalist who grew up in her hometown of Auburn, New York, and had heard about her and went in pursuit of her. And I tell you, it's one of the most compelling um, stories to read his correspondence, his his real investigative techniques, and then the difficulty he had getting the book published. Reading all of his rejection letters from publishers was really quite, quite stunning. And when I came and out... And why did they reject it? Um, who was Harriet Tubman? Who cared about Harriet Tubman in 1943? And uh, the book was published by an African-American press. And 
when you look at the fact that that when I was an undergraduate at Harvard in African American studies, I don't ever remember hearing Harriet Tubman's name. When I was teaching there in the uh, early 1990s, I was asked by an encyclopedia to write an article on her, and I went and found out that there were biographies in the works on Sojourner Truth. There was uh, just recently um, a biography of Rosa Parks, uh, a biography of Marian Anderson, all these wonderful African-American heroines. But how could we not have a biography of Harriet Tubman? So I decided, well, I had many, as you point out, I've been publishing a lot of books and I juggle a lot of responsibilities and my two children. And I did quit teaching full time in order to pursue a writing career and actually got into children's books during that. So I think Harriet Tubman as a children's book figure, brought me into why isn't there an adult biography of her? And we need to really stop the mammification, desexualization, and look at her for what she was, a warrior, a woman, someone who was fighting for social justice her entire life, and a great humanitarian. I want to get back to the Civil War. Um, you've done a lot of work, not just on Fanny Kemble, but the, the collected volume, um, Southern Families at War, uh, you've written Terra Revisited? Did I... Women War and the Plantation Legend. That's correct. And um, really, a little over a decade ago, Divided Houses, Gender in the Civil which, War. Which, of course, is the big one, which really opened the doors to thinking about or looking at the Civil War through the lens of gender. For so long, the Civil War has been a subject of military history, for good reason. Uh, but you really helped to kind of turn our attention to it in a different direction. And what what compelled you to do that? What uh, what are the origins of that? The origins of that were lunch. I always tell people, make sure you have lunch with people. And my colleague, Nina Silber, had just come to Boston, and she was working on her first book and was looking at questions of gender. And we were talking about going to conferences and seeing all this good work being done. But how could we get a a a call out for more good work. And so Divided Houses, I think, was the first call to arms. We need to arm ourselves with an understanding of the Civil War as having many battlefronts. The home front was just as contested. The issues that went on after the war, just as contested, so that I would write about African-American women during Reconstruction, trying to reconfigure notions of ladyhood, womanhood, that, that many, of the many, many of the pieces in the volume have now become wonderful books. But it's also true that it was just a beginning, and it is, I say that, because now a sequel, uh, which isn't really, um, uh, is a follow-up of sorts, a 21st century um, anthology that Nina Silver and I are editing will be out soon. It's called Battle Scars, Sexuality, Gender, and the Civil War, because we use gender as a term, and we usually think of it in terms of women's studies, but gender studies has really matured in the past quarter century, and we lead off with two articles on masculinity. What was the impact of war on New England writers, on on males in terms of their sense of gender and their sense of themselves, and expanding into areas. Uh, Lisa Carden has a wonderful piece on sexual violence, and Jim Downs writes about African-American women and children and disease in the wake of the war and the battle over who would care for, who was in charge of, how health and disease is a public issue and it gets racialized. So I think looking at questions of race, gender, sexuality is exploding and expanding. And I really wanted this um, new book uh, to show the embattlement of the field to come out, my own pieces on um, public women. And I used this term 
probably most of our listeners aren't familiar, that in the 19th century, a public woman was a prostitute. So when I first said I was working on public women, several of my colleagues said, that's just great. We need to know what women did in public. And they, of course, were missing it. But of course, yeah, what were these political women doing? And of course, that ended up being really the theme of, of this essay, which is that when women step outside the domestic sphere, they get smeared as, quote, public women. Their, their sexual propriety gets called into question. It happened in New Orleans with Ben Butler. It happened in Richmond. And so I write about the way in which the, the war transformed attitudes towards sexuality and propriety, and sexual conventions began to change. And I, I put it out there and hope that uh, a new generation will take up that call and we'll see many, many more exciting works in that field. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, what did the Civil War do? Did it create some new context for prostitution? Or what was, what was really, what was happening in these cities? Well, the Civil War was the single greatest expansion of the sex trade in American history. The explosion was unbelievable. It was the first time you had um, certainly... Uh, thousands of women, if not millions, thrown onto their own devices. The economic dislocation that went on was horrendous. You also had 30,000 men coming into the Memphis area. <laughs> what was going to happen? Of course, prostitutes would follow. How it was going to be controlled, how it was going to be regulated was a real problem. And during the middle of the war, many military men actually became involved in issues of public health, declared it a military need to regulate prostitution, and there were campaigns to regulate prostitution. For the good of the health of the soldiers? For the good of the health. Nashville was the capital of this, and it was very effective. It was absolutely reduced the rates of prostitution. They were given medication. They were licensed. They were registered. And it was such a successful campaign that it was going to be exported to another city, to Memphis, but it was headquarters in Washington that put an end to that campaign because was the United States government going to be in the business of endorsing prostitution. So we've always had the sexual policy. So it didn't set any foundation for government policy. No, it didn't. It didn't. Uh -huh. But it does set a great, a great um, debate in motion for those of us in the field and interested in these questions of sexuality. I mean, people did consult what was going on in France and the licensing of prostitutes there, and they did look abroad. And of course, you had contagious diseases acts and campaigns in England, in towns with naval officers to regulate prostitution. So you did start the big debates, and they went, these debates went on in America within military circles. And, and I think we really need to see a lot of uh, expansion of work on that. So anyone looking for a great topic to do mm -hmm. research on. Um, there, there, there are many, many topics, of course, and, and wonderful records that we're still exploring. I mean, every year I read a wonderful, Francis Clark did a piece on the relationship of men who lost limbs, amputees, and manhood, and sexu sexuality, and how in post-war, post-Civil War America, the loss of a limb really was a sign of honor, and they wore their pinned sleeves as a badge. So there, there are ways of really talking about the effect of the war on men and women and its after effects. And, and I think we're still in a, in a really good period, a very, a very flourishing period. About a decade ago, I proposed a civil war book for children to one of my publishers, and they said, I really don't think so. And I was so shocked in the wake of Ken Burns's The Civil War series and in, the, in, in what I thought was a really popular 
inter- national popular interest in it. Um, luckily, one of uh, one of publishers did get interested, and I had a book come out with Scholastic for children on the Civil War, the Scholastic Encyclopedia of the Civil War. And there's another one on Black Soldiers. I did a book mm-hmm. for Houghton Mifflin called The Black Soldier. Mm-hmm. But I also really feel that the stories of the Civil War need to be told to younger children. And, of course, war is a tough subject. But I really am pleased that that the publishing industry now is really welcoming and encouraging of historical topics. The chapter book, historical chapter book for kids is really flourishing, but also history for younger children. So I have my first book for five to eight-year-olds coming out this summer. It's called Hold the Flag High. It's the story of the first Black Medal of Honor winner, William Carney, and the story of his courage at the Battle of Fort Wagner, which was... um, an embellished story of glory, a film by Ed Zwick. And I really thought, why not make a heroic story for children about war? When I first proposed it, there was a little cold feet. Um, But I think, of course, sadly, because our nation remains at war, and war is very much a part of the modern landscape, that stories of heroes are now very appealing. And it's wonderful to see these heroes of the past who were African Americans being celebrated, who we don't know. We know Molly Pitcher. We know uh, we, we we know George Washington. We know um, Robert E. Lee and U.S. Grant. But we really need to know some of the other heroes. And so William Carney will get his due when Hold the Flag High comes out. Well, that's quite a journey you've made from plantation mistress, you know, coming out of a dissertation for an academic audience now to children. But you've always throughout dealt with very difficult subjects. You know, again, getting beyond the myth and looking at the conflict. And so when you're now writing for children, how do you write differently? Or how do you approach, you know, the difficult side of history, but do it in a way that children can accept and absorb? Well, I think you can't, you can't, you can simplify, but you can't dumb it down. And how you do that, one without the other, is to not condescend and to say you may omit details. You may not give the fuller expanded story, but you must give at your core an honest, true account. I'd also like to say that although my first book, The Plantation Mistress, came out of my dissertation, that from my earliest work, I really sought a wider audience in the sense that I, I, I call it the Aunt Gladys syndrome. Your Aunt Gladys is going to read your dissertation because you're her niece and so wonderful, and of course it's great. But what about writing for other people's Aunt Gladys's? Why not make history accessible, engaging? Why not have a prose style that will invite people in and make them want to read more history rather than limiting our audience through jargon or um, some theoretical approaches that I think have their place in the in the journals. But I really want history to be so beloved, and I want children to love history. And I had these two boys that were into Star Wars and outer space and, and also uh, manga, reading, uh, re- reading graphic novels, and I really wanted to have them engaged in history. And I saw a need to have intelligent, engaging stories for for children. So that was something I got into. So in some ways, despite what I said, it is really an outgrowth of your early work. I'd like to think so. Yeah. And how, you know, this is something that I struggle with, you know, myself, wanting to uh, appeal to a broad audience. And I think a lot of academic historians see that there's some kind of divide between 
the public audience and academic the history. The wall that's often established, yeah. is it scholarly? And is it a question of writing, as you say, but also the subjects you write about? I mean, have you chosen subjects that are going to be more interesting to a broader audience? Well, I've usually chosen subjects that are engaging to me because I have to spend years with some of these characters. I spent 20 years with Fanny Kimball, and she better be engaging and intriguing and interesting. And, and although I, I think sometimes you leave these characters behind, I know Harriet Tubman is someone I'll always carry with me that she was engaging. But I am pursuing a biography of Mary Todd Lincoln, and I can't say that I was not influenced by the fact that I was appointed to the Bicentennial Commission, that I've been on the Lincoln um, Soldiers Institute Board of Advisors at Gettysburg College, that I've been interested in the broadening of the field. And, and so um, Lincoln Studies is always flourishing from the, from the centennial in 1909 to 2009. There's never been a lull when there hasn't been an interest. And so I, I am interested in these engaging subjects, but you also hope you can bring something new. I, I must say that in 19th century women's history, I've uh, been at, read a lot about it. I've been at a lot of institutions. And, and I was surprised to find out that spiritualism, which was something very much a part of um, Mary Todd's life and Mary Todd Lincoln's experience, was was totally absent from most, quote, academic literature. There is a popular history of it, and it's growing, and I think there's now some cross-pollination, but I really think that's a good example that I think a lot of the American public would be very interested in what was the context of trying to reach out to the other side. In, in the 1830s, when you had spiritualism rising, you also had the rise of the telegraph. You were in one place, and people very far in another place we're going to get your messages by a wire. Now, I think explaining that was, was, was difficult and challenging and scientific, but spiritualism also believed you could communicate across the divide as well. So I see some parallels with temporal issues, with spatial issues, with spiritual issues. And, of course, women were at the center of the spiritualist movement. When you start reading spiritualists, they, they were the earliest people doing gender studies, from what I can see in American writing. They were completely obsessed with the feminine and the masculine in each individual, in the body, and the spirit transformed. So I'm, I'm always pursuing subjects, I hope, that will open new doors and, and, and provide um, I hope, uh, an engaging way of, of getting at the past. But I also think, for example, I mean, you mentioned um, um, Harriet Tubman, and, and there are two new books out on Harriet Tubman alongside mine by Jean Humez and Kate Larson, and there are three or four more in the pipeline. And I say, let a hundred Harriets bloom. I like to, to read my colleagues. I like to be engaged, and I think that's why we're interested in history. Um, if, however, we stop debating our colleagues in our books and put it in our footnotes or do these wonderful TV programs, uh, radio programs, TV programs, go to conferences and do that. But in our books, try and bring the richness of our enthusiasm to the page. I think that's that's my real commitment and what I've been really interested in. Also, I've, I've done some work on films recently because I'm really, really interested in the way in which a great documentary or a great feature film could could engage people in the past and and um, you go into a classroom, I do some visiting teaching, and you say, why are you here? And the student says, I just saw The Patriot 
want to know about the American Revolution. I mean, many of my colleagues disdain that. The Patriot was full of errors. The Patriot is wrong. But the Patriot also engages people's interests, and they can go read the books that tell them why there were errors. And, and I'm, I'm really concerned about that. And we, I believe, as a scholarly community, should really be committed to communication and really be committed to reaching out to a wider audience. At the same time, I, I say, look, I, I went to graduate school in the in the 70s. I mean, there was um, French medieval beach reads. You know, Natalie Davis does, does The Return of Martin Gare, which turns into a film which actually was a great Civil War film with Jodie Foster and uh, and, and Richard Gere, uh, Summersby. So we, we, we you know, I, I had dreams and possibilities, and I would like to see more of my colleagues engage in that, museum studies, um, public history programs. Um, and with, by the way, the Lincoln Bicentennial, we're, we're on committees trying to say, how can we get the public fired up and people in their everyday lives really interested in the past and engaged in the past? At the same time, you know, we are engaged in very different questions for the bicentennial of Lincoln than we were for the centennial. What What was his his legacy for African-Americans. What was the engagement of the Civil War in terms of transforming women's lives, black as well as white? So there's always a way of updating this, I think. I, might, I have a website now because I do children's books and you go. and www.katherineclinton.com. There you go. And it's, uh, it's, it's something that you, you, you're in cyberspace. You're in a new realm. You, you want to be, and I would like to say, love talking on the radio because radio sales, that is your book sales following radios, bigger than Amazon. I learned that on a recent book tour. So we love our radio listeners because people who listen to book shows are people who buy books. They're so interested. Should I give them more titles? No. <laughs> no, just say that. Go buy uh, wonderful new books in Civil War history. Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom. Yes, and also Edward Ayers, uh, What Caused the Civil War, coming out soon by a good friend of ours. So we have, you know, I really think if people just go online. You mentioned, though, you learn, I was saying learning from children. I have a series with Oxford University Press, Viewpoints on American Culture. I have a new book coming out called Latina Legacies. Of course, it's in my series. I call it my book, but I'm the grandmother. The true wonderful um, mothers of this are um, uh Vicki Ruiz, the upcoming president of the Organization of American Historians, and, and Virginia Corral. And they've done this wonderful anthology with 15 Latina women who give us insight into the past, engaging, wonderful. Now, my two sons came in. They saw this book on the table, Latina Legacies. They went, Mom, what are you doing? I said, what? I'm doing a book on Latinas. They said, oh, you're kidding. And I didn't understand their discomfort, but here's what we're talking about in terms of popular culture versus go onto the Internet, type in Latina. Porn sites come pouring out. This term to my son, who's, you know, your average American teenager, here's the term Latina, and he is thinking, what's his mother getting involved in? And I, of course, as a scholar sitting in the academy, think, of course, I'm thinking about the, uh, one of the fastest-growing populations, one of the most important ethnic groups, one of the histories that we really need to explore and expand on. But I'm, I'm saying the two clashing coming together make Latina legacies even more important. And I know that when I convey this story to my, my editors, they, they know these stories. I mean, they are fighting in the trenches. They're on the campuses. But they're also out in the public, and they're saying, 
we need to reclaim this amazing heritage of women who were ranchers, the lieutenant nun, women who were, were scholars, women who were artists, women who were, who were organizing the farm workers. And this is the Latina legacy. So, I mean, how can I not be excited about uh, bringing these kind of topics, I think, to the fore? Yeah, and that seems to be a theme throughout all of your work in some ways, reclaiming the histories of women that have been either shrouded in myth or ignored or, you know, otherwise just silenced in some way. Right. I mean, the past is always waiting for us and we'll always have new surprises. I mean, people think the past is dead, but it's this living thing. And history is is our way, I think, of asking questions that will shed new light, not just on the present, but in future, you know, so my grandchildren aren't going to see that grandma did a book on Latinas and giggle. They're going to be thinking how wonderful it was uh, that I was working on this noble project of, of looking at our American past as so rich and multifaceted, um, so incredibly um, Heterogeneous, which it always was. This new book in New York history tells us that the island, the first island of Manhattan, was just a little thriving international community, and it still is. And we need to reclaim that 17th century past. So that's why I love going back in time and finding all these, you know, really interesting, I think, uh, detours. But um, but I do try and keep to subjects that I hope people will be engaged in. And so when I say I'm doing a book on William Carney and someone says who may be in the next generation, that won't, that won't happen. Well, thank you, Dr. Clinton. I think this is probably a good place to, to end today. Just for today. And thank you, Dr. Taylor. 